The United Nations General Assembly wrapped up its 72nd annual general debate late last month. Many New Yorkers are familiar with the annual event, if for no other reason, because it causes week-long traffic tie-ups. But the U.N. and New York City have a long history together, one that involves much more than congested roadways. I'm George Boraki, and this is Cityscape. Our guest today is Pamela Hanlon. She's the author of A Worldly Affair, New York, the United Nations, and the story behind their unlikely bond. Pamela, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. So first of all, why an unlikely bond between New York and the U.N.? Well, I think that I call it an unlikely bond because initially when the U.N., right after the U.N. was founded and was looking for a permanent home, uh, it uh, was looking for a large, vast, uh, 40-square-mile a swath of land where it could build a international community uh, with offices, uh, schools, libraries, homes, of course, and a whole business district. Essentially countryside is what they were looking countryside for. Countryside they were looking for. Uh, they uh, decided quite early on that they would come to the United, wanted to look for a site in the United States. One of their initial choices was in the northeastern part of the U.S., um, a vast swath of land. And they they um, they actually had an engineer who determined that perhaps the land could be expanded to up to 172 square miles. Well, obviously, we know that the U.N. today is on six square blocks <laughs> of land in Manhattan. And keep in mind that Manhattan itself is only 22 square miles. Uh-huh. So it gives you some idea of the vastness with which they uh, initially expected they would settle. So what so year was this? Part of the reason Take I us call back. It what year was it? That was nineteen. That was nineteen forty-six. Uh, the UN Charter was ratified in late 1945. Uh, the search began in uh, very late in 1945. Uh, the city, New York City, always um, aspired to be the home of the United Nations. Although um, Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia at the time chose not to campaign for it. He said, you know, let's let them look around, and when all is said and done, um, they'll come to New York. How stiff was the competition? Were people really out there vying for the U.N. to come to their area? Absolutely. There was tremendous campaigning going on on the part of uh, regions and cities throughout the U.S. Uh, There were some, at at times, up to 120 uh, cities or regions of the U.S. that were being to become the headquarters. Put together fancy brochures, glossy presentations, flew to London. Now, the U.N. at that point in time, this is again in late 1945, the Preparatory Commission of the U.N. was meeting in London. So you had many of these cities flying to London to lobby for the U.N. to settle in their midst. They were courting. They were courting. But again, Mayor LaGuardia said, I'm not going to do that. He said, uh, I think that uh, that is uh, he said, I'm not going to I'm not going to lobby for it the way you might lobby for an Elks convention or a (laughs) political convention or something like that. He said, I think it's unbecoming. So what was he doing? Was he just plotting behind the scenes here in New York? Indeed. He and Robert Moses. uh, Now, keep in mind, Robert Moses at that time was the park commissioner. Uh, He and Robert Moses put together an elaborate swath of land uh, in uh, in Queens, Flushing Meadow Park, the site that had been uh, the uh, World's Fair, the 1939 World's Fair, Uh, and uh, 350 acres. Uh, It would be fully landscaped, and they were convinced that the U.N. would uh, covet this uh, this land in, in Queens. However, by the very end of 1945, 
the U.N. announced that it was going to come to the United States, but it was going to look and it was going to look in the United in the uh, northeastern part of the U.S. for a uh, for a for a home. But it did not want to be too near a metropolitan area and certainly not within a metropolitan area. So that said, where were they looking in this and region? And so they they uh, they looked throughout the northeastern United States. Uh, and at the end of a uh, multi-week uh, survey of land, uh, chose some 42 square miles of land in uh, Fairfield County in Connecticut and Westchester County. About half of the land was in Connecticut, in the Greenwich, Connecticut area, and uh, and half of the land was in in uh, in Westchester County. And what do the people in that area think of the idea of having the UN located there? The uh, the suburbanites wanted nothing to do with it. Uh, they were very surprised. Number one, uh, I think they were caught off guard, uh, and they put together a very, very effective campaign against the UN. There were some raucous, raucous meetings that took place. In fact, I have a chapter. I did devote a chapter to it called "Suburbia Unnerved," hmm. uh, which I think describes it pretty well. The uh, UN uh, did indeed finally um, realize. Uh, after about nine months of uh, of the back and forth with the suburban community, uh, that they weren't wanted in the northeastern U.S. and started the search all over again. All over again. Would they have had to have used eminent domain in that area of yes, Connecticut and West? They would have had to. And I think part of the problem was the United States at this point in time, the government of the United States, chose a neutral position. It did not want to become involved in the search. It felt that the U.N. should um, be doing this independently. Uh, so there, were, there was vague talk about how the land would be taken by eminent domain. But uh, I, I believe it seems that the, uh, that the uh, suburban residents could never really get a grasp on how that was all going to work. And it, it, it proved to be quite scary for them. So when they went back to the drawing board, did they immediately hone in on New York City? They did not immediately hone in on New York City. They were looking, they went back to the drawing board. They were looking in Boston, out in San Francisco, uh, and Philadelphia. Those were the primary areas. Now, again, keep in mind, this is the end. Now, this is nearing the end of 1946. So this search, if you will, has gone on now for almost a year. It was at this point in time that William Zeckendorf, uh, the real estate developer, had a plan uh, to uh, he had options on land on the East River, uh, the land where the UN is today, between 42nd Street and 48th Street, and uh, he was having trouble with his development, putting his development together, and he determined that perhaps he might have um, an idea land that the that the UN might uh, be interested in. He got in touch with the mayor. Now the mayor was o- o- William O'Dwyer at this point. Uh, and that led, uh, just within a few days, to John D. Rockefeller Jr. And you, you probably, and most of your listeners are probably familiar with the story. But John D. Rockefeller Jr. did donate eight and a half million dollars to the United Nations, so that in effect they could buy uh, the land on the East River. And then history started to write itself there. And huh? then history started to write itself. Exactly. There were some problems initially, but. But obvious today, we all know the UN is is still in New York, and the relationship seems to be quite quite solid. Now there was a different mayor. You mentioned Mayor O'Dwyer. Mayor right? O'Dwyer was LaGuardia still involved, even though he was no longer mayor. 
Well, LaGuardia did not live too much longer. He lived only a few years longer, but he always kept an eye. He always kept an eye on it, and he would he would sometimes have advice for uh, William O'Dwyer. Uh, usually, the advice was to be patient. Uh, that it was uh, that the U- the UN would uh, eventually choose New York. Uh, and uh, and so, yes, he, he did keep his hand in it. So when it was announced that they would move to New York and to the east side of Manhattan, were Manhattan residents in favor of it? Yes. Uh, for the most part, Manhattan residents were in favor of it at that point in time. In fact, uh, William O'Dwyer had put together a large committee, uh, some 1,000-member uh, committee, of uh, the movers and shakers of New York City to try to convince the UN that it would like to settle in in New York and uh the city the city wanted the UN i think you can say that it was it was really a a totally opposite feeling from uh the uh, the suburban uh, feeling uh, in uh, in the Greenwich Connecticut and Westchester area did the city feel that it would give it even more prestige it felt it, it felt prestige and um that economically it would be good for the city what does the UN do for the city Economically, well, today um, the city the city estimates that the UN the benefit of having the UN in the city is about th- almost four billion dollars annually, three point seven billion dollars. A study was conducted just a couple of years ago, as a matter of fact, uh, and and those were the numbers. Uh, there are some sixteen thousand employees of the UN and the agencies related to the United Nations. And of those 16,000 employees, um, approximately 12,000 live within the five boroughs. A number, a number of employees live in New Jersey, and some live in uh, Westchester County. But the vast majority live in, in the city. Speaking of the five boroughs, I want to talk about one borough, and that's the Bronx. The UN was once temporarily housed in the Bronx, correct? The UN was temporarily housed... While the UN was working on its permanent uh, facilities, obviously it needed to conduct its business, and it did select New York to be the temporary home. New York was actually this again now is early uh, early 1946. The UN at first was reluctant to be the temporary headquarters, feeling that it would be too much of a disruption to the city. Um, at a time when, now this was just at the end of the war, war veterans were coming home, uh, refugees were coming into the city, the ho- housing was a real crisis. And um, the UN, uh, or the uh, city, was concerned this would be too much of a uh, disruption. It's one thing if the UN was coming permanently, another thing if they were coming just for two or three years and then would pick up again and leave. But it did reluctantly agree uh, to serve as temporary headquarters. Actually, it was interesting. It was Nelson Rockefeller, uh, who at that point in time was in his mid-30s. He had been in the State Department. He was now back in New York City working with his father, uh, managing Rockefeller Center. And uh, it was Nelson Rockefeller who convinced, uh, now it was Mayor uh, Mayor, uh, O'Dwyer, uh, convinced the mayor that he should allow the city to be used as temporary headquarters. Because Nelson Rockefeller said, they come here and uh, spend a, a couple of years here. They're going to love it so much they're never going to want to leave. didn't quite work out that way. It was a very busy city. The U.N. Uh, uh, UN delegates, uh, U.N. facilities were spread really throughout the city. Now, you mentioned the Bronx. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, Hunter College in the Bronx was home to the um, to the Security Council offices. The city building in Queens was uh, served as the uh, as the General Assembly Hall, and then uh, uh, in Lake Success on Long Island, the Secretariat offices. Uh, so they had to do a lot of commuting. Up. They did a lot of commuting. Plus, you had offices uh, in singular in di- various buildings throughout Manhattan, and a lot of offices in hotel rooms. Uh, the Waldorf Astoria, as a matter of fact, uh, housed a lot of offices in various uh, in various rooms. So, how long did it take to build the current UN that we know? Well, the uh, UN was com- it took a few years. The UN was completed. You can say that the complex was fully completed by the fall of 1952, and that's when the UN held its first General Assembly session in the. Um, in its uh, new General Assembly Hall. The, the Secretary General at the time, Trig Valley, um, in his address to the General Assembly that year, said, we are finally solid upon Manhattan Rock. Hmm. <laughs> so, How did the design called. of that building take shape? The design, well, in New Yorker, Wallace Harrison, highly regarded uh, architect, uh, who had um, done considerable work with the Rockefeller family, was selected as the lead Architect or the director of uh, of architecture for the for the headquarters development, and then um, ten um, architects from around the world. Uh, they were selected based on so that there would be a representative from various regions of the country. Worked under Wallace Harrison, the design of the uh, of the UN headquarters was really an effort on all of their parts. Most people say that Le Corbusier, uh, the the Swiss architect, and Oscar Niemeyer, Brazilian architect, are the architects who most influenced uh, the the design that we that we know and, and see today. The UN back then was much smaller than the UN is today, though. Absolutely. In fact, the uh, UN d- was designed for 700 conferences a year whereas today it's closer up to 4,000 conferences a year. So uh, through the years, they did need new, more space, clearly. Also, just from a membership point of view in the General Assembly, uh, there were 51 member nations when the UN was founded, uh, and uh, today there are 193, uh, plus two observer states. So you can see there's been dramatic growth. So that said, what is the need for space today? Over the well, over the years, there's been continual need for space, and the city has worked hard to facilitate that. In the 1960s, early 70s, three office towers uh, were built. Two two are towers. Another is a, a lower rise building, uh, UN Plaza One, Two, and Three, that house UN offices and some of the UN agencies. Today, the UN is looking at its space needs. There is the possibility that another tower could be built through the help of an agency called the United Nations Development Corporation, which is a New York City state agency. However, the UN right now is looking at reform measures and is studying really what its future uh, office needs are going to be. They may determine that more office space is needed in New York, or they may determine that there are other other uh, cities throughout the world that where where certain offices could be um, uh, could be uh, maintained. Isn't there a playground in that area of Manhattan that plays into this story? 
there is a playground. There is a, there is a playground called Robert Moses Playground, as a matter of fact. It is a uh, very small swath of land uh, between 41st and 42nd Street, just east of, the, um, of First Avenue. Um, today it is a, um, uh, an asphalt slab of land, if you will, that is used relatively infrequently as a roller hockey uh, 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 rink. Therefore, some years ago, uh, the city and state agency called the United Nations Development Corporation, which, Corporation, which I mentioned a few, few moments ago, proposed that an office tower be built there, a tower, 40-story tower, where the United Nations could be housed. Uh, there was a plan put together for a lease-sale arrangement, whereby after a certain number of years, the uh, UN would be able to buy uh, the office facility for a dollar a year, if you will. Uh, and then the other three buildings that I mentioned, UN Plaza 1, 2, and 3, would uh, revert back to the city, which then could lease the um, lease those offices at a, an advantageous um, uh, a price. Uh, that plan uh, was proposed a couple of different times um, because that's parkland um, that in order for the parkland, any parkland in New York State to be used for, other, for another purpose, uh, the New York, New York State legislature must um, weigh in. And at the time of the legislature, the first time this was tried was in 2005, and the legislature did not approve uh, alienating, and alienating is the word, alienation of parkland, changing the use of that parkland to an office facility. And so the, um, the plan did not move forward. Uh, since that time, legislation has been passed. It's still on the table, as a matter of fact, until the year 2019, whereby if the UN was interested, the, uh, a building could be constructed on that playground space for offices. Has there ever been talk of the U.N. moving out of New York City, going somewhere else? There has been, yes. And I, I think that the time that was probably most serious was back in the, um, the 1960s. Um, during the time that Robert Wagner was mayor, Robert Wagner was mayor starting in 1954 for three terms. This was a time when the U.N. had not been in the city so long that it could not maybe have said, we can move someplace else. And there were, there were some difficulties uh, that, the, that the UN was having. Quite frankly, uh, discrimination was one of them. Keep in mind that segregation in, in uh, housing in, in New York City was not prohibited until 1958. So in the 1950s period, um, the UN um, delegates uh, and families were feeling the effects of that. And there was some unhappiness uh, with, with New York. Mayor Wagner, I think, can be credited with doing a lot to assure that the UN remained uh, uh, content in New York. He did a lot to improve the schooling situation. One of the real issues back then was that delegates um, still were not moving their families to New York City because they could not find uh, schools with, um, with adequate uh, uh, a curriculum for a, a global curriculum, if you will, for international children. And so I think that there was a time um, during that period when the UN might have uh, moved. And there were, there were 
there were various, various cities throughout the world also that were more than willing to uh, serve as the headquarters of the U.N. What have been among some of the other more serious issues between the U.N. and New York City over the years? Well, y- y- one of the one of the series I mentioned s- schooling was always an mm-hmm. issue that was resolved really in the 1970s with the uh, with the construction and opening of uh, a very fine school, United Nations International School. Discrimination in the 1960s was a was a a, a serious concern, and then throughout, uh, we all know about the diplomatic uh, parking ticket problems. Uh, probably much too much has been made of that, but it was a a serious issue. Uh, New Yorkers not totally understanding diplomatic immunity and believing that diplomats were taking advantage of diplomatic immunity uh, and not paying their parking tickets and abusing parking spaces. Quite frankly, that remained a, a, a big concern and a big concern on the part of the city until the early years of the Bloomberg administration. Um, and it was uh, in nineteen in uh, two thousand and two, uh, shortly after Mayor Bloomberg took office, um, that the city, working with the State Department and the UN legal team, uh, put together a, a program that today has pretty much eliminated that problem. So we don't hear as much of that today as we might have um, thirty thirty years ago. That said, did the U.N. ever have a particularly contentious relationship with any specific mayor in New York City? Well, I think there are probably a couple of mayors <laughs> that uh, that were uh, very vocal in their feelings about the United Nations. Uh, one was Mayor Koch, Ed Koch. Um, and he would describe himself as a proud Jew governing a city with more Jews than live in Tel Aviv. And he had some issues with the UN uh, uh, over uh, its uh, its positions vis-a-vis Israel. He said some very, very vocal inflammatory comments about the UN. Uh, Mayor Koch, as it turned out, had a very effective commissioner to the United Nations who worked with him, a woman by the name of Gillian Sorensen. Um, and actually, uh, one of Koch's biographers has credited her uh, with managing to keep the relationship as solid as it was. But he could, uh, he, he uh, again, playing to his his uh, uh, voting base, said some really quite inflammatory things about the United Nations. And, and Mayor Giuliani uh, was was similar in that in that regard. Uh, Mayor Giuliani. Um, uh, was is well known, and and many many of your listeners may know this story. But in 1995, when the UN was celebrating its 50th anniversary, uh, Mayor Giuliani hosted a um, a concert for the United Nations and observer uh, all the member states and observer states at the at Lincoln Center. And um, this is the unfortunate incident where during the concert he ordered Yasser Arafat. Uh, the leader of the, the Palestinian liberation leader to um, uh, to um, to leave the hall. He asked him to to leave the concert. It was a a very undiplomatic thing to do, caused great concern in Washington, frankly, and uh, great concern among some of his some of his political base. How do you think the neighborhood around the UN has evolved over the years with the UN, if you will? 
First of all, the, 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 the neighborhood was helped a great deal by the U.N. settling in New York. The land on which the U.N. Set is, is, uh, is now located had been um, uh, slaughterhouses, uh, factories, a not very good part of, part of, of New York City. Uh, so with the U.N. coming in initially, uh, it did help the area. Um, a great deal. Uh, it became a much more attractive area for residents. Over the years, however, uh, residents of East Midtown would argue that with all of the missions, uh, some missions building new buildings for themselves, others taking over some of the coveted old brownstone buildings that uh, East Midtown, it's called the Turtle Bay Community, um, has coveted. Um, some residents are concerned about that, uh, that there is uh, too, too many of the, of the lovely old buildings are no longer private residences, but they've become, if not missions or consulates, they've become uh, offices for UN, UN affiliates. I think a lot of people only associate disruptions and the UN with the General Assembly when it's in session because of the traffic. Correct, and 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 we all do see that traffic, but that generally lasts for just a couple of weeks. So we can we can smile about that, but some local uh, local uh, residents and some of the community leaders are concerned that the residential feel of of the the neighborhood is uh, is uh, being lost with more and more offices coming in. Now, I I would argue, and I live in the I actually live in the area. I would argue that the area remarkably still um, has a neighborly feel, um, and I think that maybe just shows us what a what a large, vast city New York New York really is. How long have you lived in that area? Well, I've lived in the area since 1976. As a matter of fact, I moved to the area because it was in walking distance of where I was working. I was certainly not. Uh, involved with UN activities by any means, uh, I was working in the Pan- the old Pan Am building, now the MetLife building, um, and uh, and frankly didn't focus too much on the fact that the UN was was a neighbor uh, until then. Um, some years ago, in the early two thousands, I started to do a little writing about the neighborhood and a little work for the for the local community, and that's when I began to recognize began to recognize uh, what a really Quite an amazing uh, partnership this is between the city and and, and New York. And that's when and the how, idea for the book came about. Huh? It is. It is how this city of ours, this great city of ours, can absorb uh, the world's central gathering place, if you will. Uh, and yet, someone who lives relatively close would not actually uh, be too affected by that. How did you go about doing the research for this book? Well. The first place I started was the United Nations Archives, a marvelous repository of uh, obviously everything about the UN, but they have some some uh, I found some valuable valuable material about the very early days of the uh, of the UN city relationship. And then of course I used the municip- municipal archives because I wanted to look at all the mayor the uh, papers of the of the mayors and um, and uh, many of their uh, commissioners to the UN. Each mayor since uh, Wagner has had a commissioner reporting to him uh, that focuses just on the relationship between New York and the United Nations. I spent time at the Rockefeller Archives um, up in Terrytown, uh, Pecanical Hills, because, of course, uh, the 
chapter that focuses on Rockefeller's gift uh, to the United Nations uh, was of great interest to me. What part of the story, Pamela, would you say fascinates you the most? I think the part that fascinates me the most is probably the years during which Robert Wagner was mayor of New York from 1954 until until the, the, the mid-60s. Because that's a time when it's clear to me uh, the U.N. might was seriously considering a move to another location. It simply was not so settled in the city that it couldn't have moved. And Robert Wagner did a lot uh, to um, assure that that didn't happen. So do you think the U.N. is here to stay for good? I do. I think at this point, you know, there, some people have likened the relationship to a to a, a a couple, a married couple, a kind of a long, successful marriage. There have been quarrels along the way, even threats to leave one another. But through it all, the two have stuck together. And you might say that sounds like too much of a cliche, and yet I think it's kind of true. And now we have a, a couple that is an elderly couple. I mean, they're entering their 72nd. This was the 72nd General Assembly. That or This is the 72nd General Assembly. Uh, so at this point in time, I think they're both used to the, the quirks of the other, and I don't think we're going to have a separation. The book is A Worldly Affair, New York, the United Nations, and the story behind their unlikely bond. Pamela, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Pamela Hanlon's A Worldly Affair is out now from Empire State Editions, an imprint of Fordham University Press. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producer Caroline Rotante. I'm George Boldarki. Thank you for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.